Well, good morning. Good to see each and every one of you here this morning. It is always a privilege to be able to come and to share the word with the church. Um, this morning, I asked the first service, and I'm going to ask you as well. I have an assignment for you. As I'm up here, I need your prayers. Um, I, for the last couple of days, I've been struggling with my voice and struggling with the scratchy throat. And so somehow, Pastor Rick did not have to take over for me last service. And so your prayer and your, uh, uh, your assignment today is pray that the Lord will help me get through this sermon as well before my voice completely gives out. Um, but it, it, all, God is in control. And he is he's definitely doing his work, and he, this is his word. So... We are back in our series in the book of Genesis. We've been going through the story of Abraham. Uh, I am saddened to say this, but today is our last day in the, in the series. And you might be thinking, Genesis chapter 22, there is a long way to go. Uh, why are we stopping here? Well, we've been really looking at the life of Abraham. Uh, there's a lot more in the book of Genesis. Again, you might be asking, wait, Abraham's story is not over. Why are we stopping here? Well, we wanted to stop here as we lead up to uh, Resurrection Sunday. Next, uh, next Sunday, we'll be celebrating Resurrection Sunday, and then we'll be switching gears a little bit. But what, I, what we wanted to do was to get to Abraham's story, and especially this chapter that we're going to be dealing with so often is talked about in theological circles as the crux of Abraham's story. It's all been leading up to this point. Last week, we heard a little bit about Abraham's, the promise is finally here. Isaac was born. And so, but now there's a bigger story that's being written. Um, but before we get into that, I, I want to tell you about a little observation I made about our, the Thomas household recently. I've noticed as of late, mostly around the last couple of months or so, a lot of the ownership at home, um, from everything from, our, from our cars to the stove in the kitchen to the refrigerator to everything, has suddenly changed ownership from me and Jen to our toddler. The word we hear at least a few hundred times a day is the word mine. It's mine. Everything is mine. No matter what you're doing with it, no matter what it is used for, it's mine. This morning, I woke up and I been, uh, mentioned to you I have a scratchy throat, and so I had a bag of lozenges in my hand, and I went into Judas' room, and he immediately goes, that's mine. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. And then that erupts into a whole argument. Um, but there is something as funny as it is, or as childish as we may think of it, it's symbolic of our nature. There is something within us that says we need to possess something. We need to hold on to things. We need to hold on to people. We need to hold on tightly to those around us. We need to hold on tightly to the jobs that we have. Whatever it is, there is something inside of us that says we need to hold tightly. But my question today is this. What happens when what you're holding on to tightly gets in the way of what you need to do or what you need to be or what God's calling you to be. Every weekday morning, we have this argument at home, well, a conversation at home with Judah again. 
Typical Judah day begins with one of us going into his room, getting him out of bed, and immediately beeline to his, his shelf full of his toys, his bookshelf. He'll grab something. He has a book in one hand. He has his, his Legos in the other, or he has a car or one of his Hot Wheels in the other hand. And then begins the struggle. We'll put him on the table, and I go, Judah, it's time to get your pajamas off and put your clothes on because it's, we have to go to school today. He's like, great. But what he does not do is let go of the book or the pajamas or the, or the car. And so often, my struggle is trying to get that book. I said, Judah, put the book down. It's yours. Don't worry. No one's taking it. He's like, no, it's mine. No matter what, it's a death grip, and it's, he's not putting that down. And so the struggle goes back and forth, back and forth, and eventually, half an hour later, we've put clothes on, and then it's time to go to school. And now the struggle begins again. I don't want to go to school because I have to play. This is what I have to do. This is what I want to do, right? And so we see that. But for him, his task and his purpose for the day is his identity for the day is, hey, he's a student at Toddler Town, so he's going to come. He's, gonna, he's got a few things to do for the day. But what his focus is on is on the toy, on the book, and that focus, his death grip on it, keeps him from accomplishing what he's called to do. Now, that's a Judah story. What's your story? What are the things in your life that we, you and I hold on to so tightly that sometimes God's looking down and saying, let go, because I need you here. I need to do this thing in you. What's that thing that you're holding on to? Because you see, for some of us, it's literally things. We have possessions we've accumulated over time that we will not let go of. Or maybe it's a vocation, it's a job, it's a, it's a calling for some of us. Where God called us to something at some point, but we're holding on so tightly that we've ignored the calling that he has for us now. Or it's a job that we, it defines who we are, it gives a sense of purpose. And when we lose that, our entire world falls apart. Or maybe it's a relationship, it's a friendship, it's a, it's a relationship with someone else that you know you're not supposed to be in. And God's calling you away from it, but you're holding on to it, not letting go. My question is, what is it this morning that you're holding on to so tightly that gets in the way of God's work? What happens when what we have comes into conflict with who we are supposed to be. When what we have comes into conflict with what God wants us to be. Well, this morning, we're going to meet a man. Actually, we've met him before, Abraham. And we're going to see how that conflict is resolved in his life. We're in Genesis chapter 22. Um, last week, I mentioned a few minutes ago, we, we saw Isaac. We met Isaac for the first time. Isaac is born. And we also saw in the same chapter, a lot happened. Isaac was born, but so was Ishmael cast off. Ishmael, Abraham's other son, was sent off into the desert. And then we see all, a lot of other things happening. And so this is how Moses starts in Genesis 22. After all of these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
All right, let's pause there. Because here's what I want to talk about today. God tested Abraham. Say that with me. God tested Abraham. The word for tested in the Hebrew is this word nisah. And it's translated to prove something's worth. In other words, it's almost like how a goldsmith will take a piece of gold, put it through a fire in order to prove what's truly within it, in order to purify it, in order to bring its value out. So to prove its worth. But you see, in some of our translations, in some of our English translations, especially a few of the older ones, have a different word in there. Instead of God tested Abraham, they, the translations go, God tempted Abraham. And sometimes when we come across that, it can stand as a stumbling block. And so today I want to take a quick peek into those two words and see which is more appropriate. You see, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, this is what James is writing to the church. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he continues in 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when he, when he has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God sometimes tests his people. God allows trials in his children's lives. Let that not be a surprise to any one of us. This morning, as I walked into, into church, I came across this image, and it's, it's a picture of our bulletin board right outside those doors. It's the school entrance, and you may not be able to read what it says, but it, this is what it says. If we ask God to help us grow, then we can't be surprised when it starts to rain. Take a moment to think about that. We can't be surprised when it starts to rain. You see, trials and challenges and tests are a part of our lives as Christ followers. That's what we signed up for. That's what we committed to. As soon as we signed on the dotted line, you may not have, but as soon as you professed faith in who Jesus is, this also comes with a lifetime of trial. James is saying, don't be surprised when you have trials, but their trials and these tests have a goal in mind. You see, a trial or a tested faith leads to steadfastness, and that steadfastness leads to completeness. That completeness, he will go on to say, leads to the crown of life. Your tested faith is accomplishing something in you. And so he's saying, when you go through a trial, embrace it. 
Count it joy when you go through a trial. Count it joy when you're persecuted. Count it joy when people speak ill against you. Count it joy when you feel the pressure. Because that pressure is doing a work within you. You may not be aware of it, but God is working in the background. He's creating an attitude of steadfastness. He's creating a character of steadfastness. And that steadfastness is leading towards completion and perfection in Christ. And so even as you are in the midst of your trial right now, even as you are in the midst of your pain right now, know that there is a bigger purpose. Know that there is a bigger work that is happening in the background. Take joy in it. Not saying be, ignor be ignorant of the pain, but take joy in the work that God is doing through the pain. You see, there is tested faith. God will test. But then there is another stream of work that happens in the life of a believer, in the life of a Christ follower, and that is temptation. James is saying, God, will not, God is not tempted, and he will not tempt. You see, that is the work of the enemy. And that is often our own work. When we, when we fall into temptation, it's because we follow our lusts. We follow our, our desires of the flesh. And what temptation does is temptation entices us towards sin. And sin leads towards death. Testing through God, our trials in God leads us to life and reward of a crown. But temptation, what Satan brings, what, our, what we let ourselves into leads us to death. And he's saying, don't be confused by the two. But know this, that you will have trials. Know this, that you will have challenges that come up in life. Over the many years I've attended quite a few weddings of family and friends, and as, and as a pastor, I've had the privilege of conducting a few of those. And it's always a joy to be able to stand up on the altar with the couple. And the, and the couple, they're looking at each other, they're in love, they're joyful, they're happy, and they make these vows to each other. And the vows go something like this, I'll take you in for better or worse. I'll take you in sickness or I'll take you for richer or, right? We know these vows, and they say I do, and, and, and that's, it's a beautiful moment. But for those of you who are married, um, if you're not, this is a little insight into how life is. Take a, take a trip back with me. Take a trip back to the, the day or the moment you were at that altar. And when you said those words, what was that moment like? Were you imagining the the sickness and the poor and the, and the worse? Or were you imagining the health and the joy and the better and the, and the richness? Yes. More often than not, if we're honest with ourselves, we were imagining the, the good side of things, right? We were imagining what life could be like and the joy that we were entering into. But you see, life is not all about that. Quickly, we realize that the rich, uh, the, the rich can become poor. Quickly, we realize there's a worse side to the better. Quickly, we realize that there is sickness around the corner. But it is usually in the bad side that love is tested. It is usually through the conflict that we find out what true love means. 
It is usually when we engage with the, the chaos, when we engage with the, with the pain, that's where love grows. It's great to always have the good times. It's easy to coast, but it's usually in the tough that we put in the work, that we are there for each other, that we encourage each other, that we build each other up. And he's saying if that, if that is the case for love, then that is the case for faith as well. It is in the testing of our faith. It is in the trials that we as Christ followers grow. It is in the trials that we as Christ followers experience who God is. Simply this. Embrace your trials. Now, let's not get this wrong. Not every hardship that we go through is a test from God. Yes, some of them are. Some of them are the work of the enemy. Absolutely. He is always at work trying to trip us up. He is always at work trying to break us down. He's always at work trying to bring enmity between us and each other, us and God. But then there's also the side of our own, our own faults. Sometimes we make poor decisions, and we have to live with the consequences. We, make, we, we rush into things, or we, we make bad choices. And so hardships are not always trials. Hardships are not always tests. But in the tests, in the hardships, we believe in a God who is able to take all things and turn it for the good of those who trust in him. We believe in a God who is able to redeem no matter what your circumstance, no matter what your background, and he's able to redeem and bring it back towards good. That's the God we trust. So let's continue in Genesis chapter 22. Well, I'll read from the beginning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Let's take a quick break here. See, for us, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that this is a test. We know Moses is giving us a clue. He's saying, God is testing Abraham. What does Abraham not know? That this is a test. Abraham has no idea what God is doing. All he hears is God saying to him, saying, take your son. All right, he has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Take your son and offer him up. All right, I'll, I'll offer up Ishmael. No, no, no. Take your son whom you love. All right, I guess I love both my sons. No, no, no. Take your son whom you love, Isaac. God is very specific. And he tells Abraham, Take your son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him up as sacrifice. Now, in our ears and in our minds, that is abhorrent. It, it is something unimaginable. It is unthinkable. You see, burnt offerings in the ancient Near East during that time was not foreign. It was a way of life. Burnt offerings were offered up all the time. Human sacrifices were done too. So when Abraham hears this, he's not surprised by it, but he's saddened by it. He's perplexed by it. To him, the God who, who just gave him the son, God who blessed him with Isaac about 15 years ago, is now suddenly asking, give him back. 
See, gods of that time in, that, in those cultures, in those religions, would ask for, their, for, for children to be sacrificed. And so for Abraham, it's not something foreign. So here's what Abraham does. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which, of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Take a moment to think about what God is asking of a father. Now, not just any ordinary father, a father who had waited a hundred years for a son. A father who had fought through all sorts of trials. A father who had fought through everything to get to this point. God had promised him at age 75 that he would have a child. 25 years he waited. 25 years of challenges. 25 years of mistakes. And now here he is, the child of promise. A child of promise, the promise which said, through this child, nations would be blessed. Nations would come out of this child. And suddenly, does it feel like God's reversing that plan and saying, let's sacrifice this child? Not much is said about about Abraham's emotional state, but you can imagine. You can imagine what a father would be feeling in that moment. It just says that Abraham did it. Abraham got up the next morning and did it. See, So often when we read through this passage and we read through it without dwelling on it, we can look at Abraham's response as robotic. God said it, he did it. But think about the amount of time that he spent worrying, the amount of time that he spent grieving. Because here he was, a son whom he loved. That whole night... When God spoke to him in the middle of the night, that whole night, he may have been tossing and turning. The next morning, he gets up. Here's a man, if you think about it, he's about 115 years old. And what, it, what Moses records is interesting. A man who is extremely wealthy, has servants upon servants, who are ready to do a, the, the thing as soon as he asks for it. What does Moses record? That he went and he saddled up the donkey that he went and he cut the wood. A man who has servants to do all of that is doing that himself. A man at the age that he is is doing it for himself. Anyone ever try to work through the chaos to get your mind off of it? Anyone ever try to cope by putting your effort into physical labor or put your mind into your work so that you don't have to deal with the pain? You see, that's what Abraham's doing. Abraham's getting all this ready, and now he has a three-day journey ahead of him. And on that three days, only you, you and I can imagine the thoughts running through his head. With each step, it was a step towards the death of his son. It, each step was a step towards pain. Each step was a step towards losing the thing that he had so longed for. But you see, Abraham for a moment did not doubt God's command. God was, not a- God was asking him to act against common sense. God was asking him to act against his natural, his natural affections. And yet he did it. 
The next morning, he packed up and he left. And on the third day, as they arrived closer to Moriah, he tells his servants, why don't you hang back? Stay here with the donkey. Isaac and I will go and worship and we will come back. We will come back. What happened in, Isaac, in Abraham's mind for him to be able, is it just a simple white lie so that they wouldn't stop him? I would like to argue the other. As a matter of fact, Scripture argues the other. The author of Hebrews writes this way. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able to even, even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, in each step that Abraham took towards Moriah, in each step that Abraham took towards a sacrifice, instead of being worried, what he was doing was rehearsing what he knew about God. What he was doing was building his confidence in who God was. Because by the end of it, when he was there to talk to his, his servants, what he says, in not in, instead of breaking down in pain, what he's saying is, I have confidence in my God, a God who will raise up my son from the death, dead if he has to. Because if I look back, everything that I had was dead. And God brought life out of it. When Sarah was not able to bear a son, he made Sarah pregnant. When, when, uh, when I was worshiping my idols, he called me out of it. When I had no way of going forward, he rescued me. He did this. He is the one. And if, even if, even if it all falls apart, even if chaos reigns for the day, God will still do it. Abraham's story calls us out to have faith like Abraham. Will you be able to stand in the midst of your chaos? Will you be able to stand in the midst of your pain, in the midst of crumbling finances, in the midst of a, a marriage falling apart and says, even if this ends the way it is supposed, it, it, it ends, my God will still be able to raise it up. Amen. Abraham had that confidence. Let's continue in Genesis 20, 22, 6 through 10. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. They're making the ascent to the mountain. And as they're making the ascent, Scripture records that Isaac looked around. Isaac has, been, ha, has done enough sacrifices with his dad to know that, hey, we have the wood, we have the fire. Dad, what's missing? What's missing? The lamb is missing. And God, Abraham's answer, Abraham's answer of faith, God will provide. 
God will provide for himself. This is a sacrifice to him. God will take care of it. You see, even in the, in the face of his own son, asking him that, even in the face of no answers, God, Abraham is able to say, God will provide. You see, this is a turning point in his story. In this story, this is the moment where Abraham has declared, even if God has me put him to death, he will raise him up and he will provide. Even when all is hopeless, Abraham says, hope in God. You see, in your test, in your test, trust that God is refining your faith. In your trial, trust that God is refining your faith. You see, Abraham's faith is building and building as he takes every step towards that fire, towards that sacrifice. In the midst of his, in the midst of his trial, his faith is being clarified. His faith is finding roots. His faith is becoming action. Abraham builds the altar, puts Isaac on it, lays the wood, and he's about to, he's about to strike with a knife. You see, faith became action. Faith became action. Let's take a pause on Abraham's faith there. Let's take a moment to think about Isaac. What teenager would willingly put themselves in this situation? Isaac is clearly the stronger of the two. Isaac is carrying the wood up the hill. Isaac is the one being put on the altar. Because you see, what I would like to imagine is this. As they are taking every step up that hill towards the altar, Abraham is rehearsing and Abraham is reminding and Abraham is telling Isaac the story. Let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about your birth. Let me tell you about the time where he rescued me. Let me tell you about the time he called me up. Let me tell you. Abraham is actively passing on the faith. And in Isaac is this faith, the same faith that is in his father that is dwelling in him. And he is able to go through his own trial. He is able to lay on his own altar. He is able to do that, willingly or not. But we don't see him fighting it off. You see, in God's economy, works matter. James writes this in James chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So often we talk about faith, and faith is paramount. Without faith, no one can approach God. No one can see God. No one can, uh, no one can believe in God. But James is connecting faith without works is dead. Abraham's faith became alive. Abraham's faith became work. And by that, he was justified. Dear friends, you and I, we all believe, we all ascend to having faith. But the question today is, does that faith live out on your day, in your daily lives? Does that faith have action 
attached to it. We continue in Genesis 22. Just as Abraham was lifting up that knife to strike his son, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. In your test, trust that God's character will be revealed. In your test, trust that he will speak. In your, in your test and in your trial, know that God is there. He is speaking. See, Abraham passed the test. He passed the ultimate test. But here's the crux of the, text, the test. Here's why God was putting it, him through this. Because God is asking this question. Abraham, I, your God, blessed you with Isaac. I, your God, blessed you with this promise. Now, the question is, what's more important, me or the promise? What's more important, me or your child? What's more important, me or the blessing that I've given you? What's more important to you, the giver or the gift? See, that's a question you and I will have to answer as well in our ways, in our own, in our own lives. Because it's said that we all have an Isaac of our own. There are things in our lives that we hold on to so tightly that God gave us as a blessing. And so often he's asking this, what's more important to you, the Isaac in your life or the God who gave you that Isaac? What's more important, the God who gave you the job or the job itself? Abraham passes his test. And Abraham then lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Can you imagine with me the joy in that sacrifice? Abraham looks up and God has provided. He has experienced God in a way unlike another. Isaac looks up. He's looking out from the altar, and he sees the ram. And can you imagine the joy with which they sacrifice? But on that altar is also this declaration, God, all that I am, all that I have is yours. Whatever you demand of me, it's all yours. See, Abraham had passed the ultimate test. It was the final exam in a series of tests. Abraham passed. God saw to the lamb himself. Abraham looked up, they offered. See, God's testing proves our faith and reveals his providence. God's testing proves our faith and reveals his providence. What you cling to is usually the thing that God asks you to release. But you see, when you're releasing it, we don't release it just like that, because what, he, what you release, he will return back to you, usually with something greater. Abraham went there with just faith. Abraham came back with an experience of a God unmovable. He came back with the experience of Jehovah Jireh. Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh. Let's take a moment to think about that name. 
Jehovah Jireh means God will provide. Not God provided. You see, as Abraham is going down the hill, he renames that place, God will provide. He's not saying God provided a lamb, but instead he says, God will provide. What's he talking about? Didn't God already finish his work? What Abraham may not have realized what it was what he was really pointing to. In naming that place God will provide, in doing this act, he was not really understanding, he was not really comprehending what was happening. Because you see, as Isaac was making that trek up the hill with the, with the wood on his back and the, the, the fire, what a rabbi many, many years after this is noting is this. Usually, the person who made that trek with the wood on the back as an instrument for their death was a condemned man, was a man who had a sentence of death. And that man, as they made, up the, made the walk up the hill, they knew that their life was done. What Abraham and Isaac did not realize was they were symbolically pointing or they were pointing to the day another lamb would be provided. Another lamb would be making its trek, making his trek up the hill, carrying a wooden cross on his back. Because you see, just, just around that area, Jesus himself, about 2,000 years later, will make that trek. And this week we celebrate, we reflect on the journey that he took from Jerusalem all the way up to Mount Golgotha with the wood on his back, a condemned man, sentenced to death. What they did not realize, as he said, God will provide, was they did not realize that God himself would send his son as the sacrificial lamb. What they did not realize, that God the son would get on the cross himself, would get on the altar himself and provide himself as the sacrificial lamb for you and me. We often, we've been talking about for these last nine weeks, we've been talking about God, Abraham being the origin of our faith. We see what God started with Abraham, what God initiated with Abraham. The, the route of salvation would be accomplished through Jesus. Jesus would be born in the family of Abraham. Jesus would be born as one of his descendants. And through that descendant would come salvation. Through that descendant comes all of us. Through that descendant, the faith that was started in Abraham, today we share. Today we are a part of, we're a part of Abraham's family. We get to call him Father Abraham because of the faithfulness of that man. Because of the steadfastness of that man. Because of the man who's, who, while not knowing that God was testing him, was able to pass the test. You and I are invited into the family of Abraham. You and I are part of God's kingdom. You and I are Christ followers. You and I partake in the sacrifice of that lamb. This morning as we close this, this service and as we close the series, let's take a moment to reflect. Let's take a moment especially to reflect on the trials that we're in, on the testing that we may undergo, on the things that God put us through or may be putting us through right now and to see the work that he is doing through that work, through that fire, through that chaos, through that brokenness, through that heartbreak. What is God doing in and through you? Because I can tell you this, 
the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness leads towards perfection in Christ Jesus. And James said, that leads to the crown of life. There's a reward waiting for us. There's a reward waiting for those who will persevere through their trials. There's a reward waiting for those who will persevere through their tests. Abraham is looking at each and every one of us and say, hold on. As we go into this holy week, let's take moments to reflect on the work that was started in Abraham that is completed through Christ and that we are a part of. Would you take a moment to reflect on that today? Would you take a moment to ask God? Would you take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit, God, speak to me through my trial. Speak to me through my test. Show me. Help me. Help me live out my faith. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your work. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, I pray that you would continue to lead us. You would continue to speak to us. Lord, even in our trials, we thank you that you do all things. You bring all things and you make all things good for those who trust in you. And Lord, I pray that you would bless each and every one of us, even in our trials, even in our chaos, that you may reign supreme, Lord. We thank you for your word. Do your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you stand with us as we continue in worship?